I'll be reading from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 to, or 13 to 35, and also uh, James chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not forget my teaching. Sorry, rather, verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then will you walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again, tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. And James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? I'd like to pray before we hear from God's word this morning. God, you are all powerful. Help us to turn our eyes to Jesus. God, we know that Jesus has his eyes on us. Help us to dwell in confidence in you and not in panic, to dwell in hope and not in despair. God, for those who have been driven to despair during these times, God, I pray that they would put your hope in you, their hope in you. God, please make your word plain to us today through your word and through your Holy Spirit and through the preaching. Help us, God, to submit ourselves and surrender to the authority of Scripture, to allow it to penetrate our hearts, to change us that we would be different, God, that we would be more holy, we would have more wisdom, 
we would have more love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. That's good to gather together in this odd and strange way, uh, which is something unique for many of us, or almost all of us, I'm sure. I spent uh, probably about 15 minutes earlier today in the auditorium, and I went through each of the services in my mind's eye in the tradition service, and I pictured where some of you were sitting and um, pictured your names and uh, was praying for you. Then I did the same in uh, um, our worship encounter. I went through uh, the seats because you're all creatures of habit and you all sit in the same place except for a few of you. Um, But I was praying for you and your families and your kids and uh, thinking at some point in the service we were going to send the kids out. And so I missed those familiar things, but um, your faces were embedded in my Mind And then I went to Thirsty, and I couldn't see any of you because it's a dark service. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, I do recall many of your faces, and so it was a joy and delight to just sit and spend a few minutes praying and realizing what it is we're missing. As we gather together, we miss the physical presence of God's people. And um, may God soon bring about a resolution to what's going on so that we can once again meet together. And what a celebration that will be for God's people when we do that. As I was thinking uh, about this text in James, and uh, it's a text that seems to come out of nowhere, uh, and I'll say a little bit more about that, but um, I've also been uh, thinking about a lot of texts that are being posted in various ways, and a scripture verse here, or a thought there from the Bible, and uh, sometimes they're in context, sometimes they're not in context. And I was thinking about the importance of just understanding the Word of God in the way that God has intended us to understand that. And uh, as I say, that was what I was thinking of when we came to this passage in James today. It seems to just come out of nowhere. It seems to be just dropped into James. And I was working through this in my head. Um, uh, words of a fellow named um, Greg Kokel. Some of you might have been familiar with Greg. Greg was here at our church uh, uh, about a year, two, two years ago. Uh, he is an apologist, and he uh, heads up Stand to Reason. But he had some great words of wisdom about how we understand the text of Scripture. And so he says, if there's one bit of wisdom, one rule of thumb, one single skill I could impart, one useful tip that I could leave with you that would serve you well the rest of your life, what would it be? What is the single most important skill that I've ever learned as a Christian? Here it is. Never read a Bible verse. That's right. Never read a Bible verse. Instead, Always read at least a paragraph. And then he goes on and he describes this a little bit. He says he has a radio host, he hosts a radio show. He says, when I'm on the radio, I have a simple rule that uh, helps me answer the majority of questions that I'm asked, even when I'm totally unfamiliar with the verse. It's an amazingly effective technique. And you can use it too. He says, I read the paragraph, not just the verse. I take stock of the relevant material above it and below it. Since the context frames the verse and gives its specific meaning, I let it tell me what's going on. This works because of a basic rule of all communication. Meaning always flows from the top down, from the larger units to the smaller units and not the other way around. The key to the meaning of any verse from the paragraph or is from the paragraph, not just from individual words. The numbers in front of the sentences, he continues, give the illusion that the verse stands alone in their meaning. But they were not in the originals. Numbers were added hundreds of years later 
chapter and verse breaks sometimes pop up in unfortunate places, separating relevant material that should be grouped together. So first, ignore the verse numbers and try to get the big picture. Then begin to narrow your focus. It's not very hard or time-consuming. It takes only a few minutes and a little observation of the text. I think those are incredibly helpful words to us as we uh, um, work on our own even now in these times of isolation to understand the Word of God. And this is how I approached, actually, the text that's before us today, James chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. I wondered at some point if we should maybe jump out of the book of James and go elsewhere, but as I reflected on that, I thought, no, we are in some of the most critical times that we are, and James addresses them. And I thought, how providential that God, through his guidance, would have us at this place at this time in the book of James. Here's another uh, translation of what uh, Chris read from the New Living Translation. It says, don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you fascinating in the times in which we live. And we'll say a little bit more about this in a moment. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. And he alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right have you to judge your neighbor? So what's the larger context of these verses? If you take away the, the, the numbers and you take away the chapters, what's the larger context? Well, I, I think in part looking forward, uh, the larger context is uh, verse 11, which Chris read, all the way to chapter 5, verse 6. And there's three units that are found there. And as we unpack those units, and I'll say a little bit more about them in just a moment, we have one unit that teaches us what it means to live in submission to God's law. We have another unit which teaches us to live in submission to God's schedule, or God's providence, or God's sovereignty. And then we have another section which teaches us about living in such a way that we trust God's provision of our needs, not any wealth that we might have stored up or stored away somewhere. Very critical and helpful words from James to us today. And we can also go backwards on this text, and we can jump back all the way at least to verse 13 of chapter 3, where if you were here, you remember we talked about two different wisdoms. There's a wisdom um, from below, a wisdom of this world that is earthly, that is human, that is demonic, and it really breeds selfishness and feeds selfishness or self-centeredness. And then there's a wisdom from above that comes from God, and it's pure and peaceable and gentle, and it's full of good works and uh, full of mercy, and it's uh, sincere and it's impartial. It's a, open to reason. It's a beautiful emphasis that comes down from above. And James has been taking that statement on wisdom, and now he's been unpacking it for us in illustrations from, from the beginning of chapter 4 to where we are today. And so what he's wanting us to do is reorient ourselves towards heavenly wisdom, to guide and direct our lives by heavenly wisdom, not by wisdom from below. And what James will say is that the way we enter into uh, heavenly wisdom is through humility, through the grace that God gives us, through repentance, that we draw near to God, that we submit to God, that we resist the devil and he will flee from us, that we get rid of double-mindedness, how critical it is that we don't sit on the fence, but that we draw near to God. 
And so as we think about these, uh, the context again of these verses, and we'll get to them specifically in a moment, but I, I just want us to see the bigger context. If we think about the context or, the, or, or what uh, James chapter 4 verse 11 to 12 is saying about us on a human perspective, he's speaking about uh, the fact that we ought not to speak evil of another. And behind that is the realization that we don't really know ourselves very well. That often we speak out of pride or selfish ambition or bitter jealousy and that leads us to act and to speak towards others in a way that puts them down or demeans them or tries to elevate us above them in some way or another. My action towards another betrays my profession of love to them as a neighbor. And then you come to James chapter 4, verse 11 to 12, and, or, or verses sorry, 12, uh, 13 to 17. And what's James getting at there? Well, he's talking about the, the, the pride of human nature, which says, I'm in control. I know what's going to happen tomorrow. I know how many days I'm going to have to live. And it's a life that's lived completely at odds with the will of God. And James says, no, we have to live our lives not opposed or against the will of God, but in keeping with the will of God. And then thirdly, in James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, he speaks about the danger or the deception that we have as individuals when we are influenced by the wisdom of the world that we hoard its resources. We hoard them to such a degree that they rot and they rust in our homes and in our pantries. And that rather than pay what is due to others and rather than love what is others, we withhold wages from them. Which is again an indication of our own pride and our own self-sufficiency and our delusion that we are actually in control. So wisdom from below says, look out for yourself. Look out for number one. Get to the top and stay on the top. Wisdom from below, as James has already told us, is driven by selfishness and selfish ambition. So we look at those three chunks again from a different perspective. And notice what they say about God and about God's divine strength and God's divine power. And it always matters that we have the right view of God. Because the right view of God will temper the influence of the world around us. And so, for instance, in verses 4, or chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, what does James tell us about God? There is one law and one lawgiver. It's so important that we wrestle with that and grasp that, and again, we'll draw out some implications of that in a few moments here. But notice what James directs us to in uh, chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. He directs us to the God who is in control of the future. The God who wills what will happen in the next hour or in the next day or in the next week or in the next month. If the Lord wills, we live in absolute dependence and confidence and trust and peace in the fact that we might not know what tomorrow holds, but God absolutely knows what tomorrow holds. And then we come to verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5 and there we realize that in the midst of our hoarding, in the midst of our trying to gain security on ourselves, that in fact that will rust and that will fade away, but our attention is to be on God. He hears our cries, he hears our prayers, he hears our needs, and not only does he hear them, but he is the Lord of hosts. He has the power to deal with anything and anyone on our behalf. 
incredible statements about God, even in these difficult times in which we live. And so what James wants us to understand is humility then. What does humility look like? What does humility look like as it's worked out in our lives? Remember, Pastor Barry ended with those words, humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. What does humility look like? Humility is fleshed out in my love for my neighbor. Humility is fleshed out in my submitting my tomorrows to God. Humility is fleshed out in trusting God for every one of my needs. Humble yourself before God and he will lift you up. So that's the broader context of of this text that we're looking at. And it's necessary, I think, just because verses 11 to 12 just seem to drop out of nowhere. And so that's a little bit of the broader context that guides us as we try to understand these verses. And then specifically, James begins by saying, do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. When he uses the word brothers there in this text, he is meaning the the brothers and sisters. There's a controlling word there, do not speak evil against. Three words in English, one word in Greek. And we need to think this through a little bit. What is James getting at when he says there, don't speak evil against a brother? Many immediately latch on to slander and say, well, James is talking about slander. He's saying, don't slander another brother in Christ. And at the end of verse 12, it would be a neighbor. So don't slander them. But I don't see that that is the best translation of the word. There are three or four other words that uh, the Bible uses that are more specific to helping us think about slander or malicious talk or an evil report or evil speech. But those aren't the words that James uses here. And I think it's helpful for us to understand. It's, it's used twice in 1 Peter And the rest of the times, it's used in the Old Testament, at least about 11 times in the Old Testament. And it's speech that flows from evil motives. It's speech that flows from bitter jealousy and from selfish ambition. It's speech that comes from a particular heart, one that does not love the neighbor, or one that believes they are above that law. To love the neighbor. Here's a few examples of those. You can follow along if you want. Um, uh, uh, you can just write them down and then follow them later on your own. But uh, the very first use of this particular word is in the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. The fourth book of the Bible. And in Numbers chapter 12, verse 8, there's a discussion going on there between Moses and his brother and sister Aaron and Miriam, the siblings of Moses. And they spoke against Moses for two reasons. One, because of his wife. I'm not sure exactly what it was about his wife, but they, they were ticked that he had married a Cushite. But also, they were ticked at his position of being a leader. They were jealous. And so as God comes to Moses' defense, God's last words for them were, why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? That's the word. To speak against my servant Moses. Do you understand how they were speaking against him? They spoke against him because of the wife that he had for some reason that ticked them off. And they spoke against him because of the position that he had. If you know the story, 
when God left their presence and the cloud lifted, it says Miriam was covered with leprosy. Why are we not more afraid to speak against one another? It's a serious thing that James is speaking about. And then you can jump to Numbers chapter 21, verse 5. And it's another situation where God and Moses are, are the brunt of people's complaints. And this time we read that the people of Israel are really bothered, uh, ticked at God and at Moses. And it says, so that the people spoke against, there's that same word again, the people spoke against God and Moses. And they said to them, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? That was the context of their words. That was their speaking against. They were complaining. They were criticizing God for his leadership and for his intent. They were criticizing Moses for bringing them. There there was a bitterness in their heart that poured out in their speech towards them. Unless we think again that that was such a light thing, then verse 6 is extraordinary. It says, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And then in verse 7, it says, And the people came to Moses and they, they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. There's that same word again. And, and, and the people there recognize that to speak against another is to sin. And then there's one more. There's others that we could turn to, but I just want to give us a sense of what this speaking against is. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, Malachi is a fascinating book. And these are difficult words to, to wrestle with, I think, if you feel anything for God's heart and for God's affection. Because there, God speaks to Israel. And this is what he says to them. He says, your words have been hard against me. That's really heartbreaking. To hear God who is the husband of Israel, God who has loved them, God who has been merciful to them, God who has been gracious to them, God who has delivered them, God who has gone before them. For God to say to the people of Israel, your words have been hard against me. And this is the people of Israel's response to God. But you say, but you God say to us, how have we spoken against you? There's that same word used in Malachi. How have we spoken against you, God? Fascinating. And I thought to myself, have I ever spoken against God? Have you ever spoken against God? How did the Israelites speak against God? Well, this is what Malachi says. You have said, it was vain to serve the Lord. What profit is there in keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. In other words, they spoke about against God by their, by their implication, God, you don't look after us. God, you don't provide for us. God, look at the wicked. The wicked are better off than we are. And in their hearts was a bitterness and a jealousy of the wicked and an envy of the wicked such that they spoke against God. We find this throughout the book of James, and we'll get, we're getting to the text. It will be shorter soon. But we find this in the book of James, then, this, this notion of speaking against now. In James chapter 2, verse, verses 3 to 4, James is first dealing with speaking against one another when he talks about us distinguishing between a poor man and a rich man. 
And we say to the poor man when he comes in, well, you sit over here. And to the rich man, we say, well, you sit over there. And how does James describe that? He says, have we not made distinctions with evil motives? See, out of our hearts, we have spoken evil against the poor brother and against the rich brother that have come into our assembly. In James 3, 8 to 10, we speak against one another. When we, when we bless the Lord with our mouth and then we turn and we curse somebody who is made in the image with our mouth. We have spoken evil against the one who is made in the image of God. Or in James chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, and this was in Proverbs chapter 3. We speak evil against a brother when they come, or a sister when they come to us and they tell us their need. They tell us their need for food or clothing. And what do we say? God bless you. Go in peace. He'll provide for you. We've spoken evil against them. So with this in mind then, as we think about this notion of speaking evil against and what James is talking about, he's urging the people of God here not to give verbal expression to selfishness or sinful envy that's in their heart. To deal with that stuff before it works its way out of our heart and into our tongue and off of our lips. So how does James then open this up? And this will be quick. Well, first, he says one of the, uh, one of the ways that we should not speak evil against our brother is, is because of how we are to think against each other. I don't know if you noticed when, when Chris read this passage, three times in verse 11 the word brother is used. Once in verse 12, the word neighbor is used. There's this pastoral heart that is now beginning to show itself once again in James as he's writing to these people. He had spoken some hard words to them from, from basically verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 13 to chapter 4, verse 10, some difficult words, but now all of a sudden his language shifts. And his, his heart is united with them. And it's like he's saying, listen, we are family. This isn't how you speak about your brother or sister. We're to love one another. We're to care for one another. We're to speak highly of one another. We're to speak kindly towards one another. And if we think it only applies to our brothers and sisters in Christ, at the end of chapter or verse 12, he says that we ought not to judge our neighbor. And so he's expanded it really to, to include all of those that are made in the image of God. There's a, um, a specific application to the body of Christ. But there's a general application to humankind. Those made in the image of God. See, there's an old adage, isn't there, that we hear. If you can't say anything good... Don't say anything at all. I think there's a, a small application of that here. And we ought not to think, well, if it's true, I can say it. Because we can use truth in a malicious way. And so here, James is saying, don't speak evil against one another. Pride says, all that matters is what I want to say. Humility says, you matter to me. And how I speak to you and about you matters to me and to God. The second thing, he says that we are to be, uh, not to speak evil against one another because of how we are to think about the law. Fascinating. 
He says to speak evil against another is to speak evil against the law and to judge the law. So really? Well, what law? Well, specifically, he's talking about the law of God. You see, it's not my law. It's, this, is the, this is the law that God has established for us. It's the law of God. It's the Ten Commandments. It's the royal law. It's a law that comes from God who is our king. It is a law that comes from God who is our judge. It is a law that guides and directs us as those who walk and live in the kingdom of God. It's a law that's summarized by two commands. What are they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. See, when we speak evilly or maliciously or against a brother or sister or against a neighbor, we're speaking against God's law, which commands us to love one another. And you say, well, how so? Well, I think it, it probably should be obvious that our evil speech is just contrary to the law of God. How can I speak unkindly to you and yet say I'm keeping the law of God, which tells me to love my neighbor? When we think it our right to speak evil against another, what we are in fact doing is we're setting ourselves above the law. We're saying that the law of love in this circumstance, in this particular setting, this royal law that God has given doesn't apply to me in this particular instance. I, I waive the law. I, I put myself above the law. I make an exception to this law, and therefore I don't have to love you. And as James says, what we do is we actually set ourselves above the law, and we are no longer doers of the law, which tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves, or to love our brothers and sisters, or to love our enemies, we become judges of the law. See, what James is getting at here is, is the rebellious nature of the human heart. We don't like authority. We don't like somebody else telling us what to do or how we ought to live. We don't like patterning our lives after somebody else's laws, or at least we'll, 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 we'll embrace the laws as long as it suits our purposes. But think this through with me for just a moment. Is there ever a time when the law of God does not apply to you? Is there ever a time when the royal law that God has given to us in the Ten Commandments, and which is the foundation for his kingdom, is there ever a time when we are able to determine on our own, well, that one doesn't apply to me in this particular circumstance? Now take this principle and apply it to the laws made by human institutions. And remember, human institutions have a derived authority which comes from God. Romans chapter 13 makes that very clear to us. And so I just throw this out to you for you to think about. Is there ever a time when you do not have to obey the laws of human institutions? When is it up to you to decide which law you can keep and which law you can break? What if everybody had that same attitude that, that you have in that Setting. So well, this law applies to me now, but not over here. And this one doesn't apply to me, but it applies to you. We would have the situation described in Judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We would have, we would have anarchy. We would have lawlessness. 
See, this principle has direct application to the circumstances of our lives today. It's fascinated me as I've been um, listening to newscasts and uh, stuff is pointed out to me about people's reactions uh, to what's going on in the world around us. And we are very much aware of new laws and new language to describe human behavior. Things that have been given down to us by medical authorities or by government authorities. And they've been given to us because of very real dangers posed to our neighbors. Have you noticed in this circumstance, it's been fascinating to me again, to notice how quick people are to point out lawbreakers in our circumstances now. Oh, they're not six feet apart from each other. Or there's a group of more than five people that meeting there. Or did you see that person in Walmart? They were too close to me. Or what about the park? You know, they, they had the park roped off, but that family let their kids still climb over the park stuff. In so many ways, we are group thinking and coming along where we say, well, we do need to listen to authorities and Give your head a shake. If, if they're telling us to stay inside or to self-isolate, then we need to listen to them. And some of them I can't repeat because the words have been pretty nasty. But we have a whole group of people who are now embracing the new laws and are holding one another to those laws. And I thought to myself, I don't regularly hear this in regards to God's law. Human law comes and goes, but God's law is an eternal law. It's a royal law, and we think it matters. Just as there's great danger right now in, in coming close to somebody who's infected and the damage that could do to a family or to an institution, and so we respect the law. We don't put ourselves above it. What about in relation to God's law? Do we not have the same concern over a law that is an eternal law? A law that is an infallible law? Do we not think it matters that we listen to what God says and that we encourage one another to be law keepers? Not in the sense of earning acceptance before God, but of walking in a way that God has established for us, which brings life, the, the way of wisdom. You see, we can't live as though God's law doesn't apply to us. What if children said to their parents, well, it really doesn't matter what you say, I know better. Beloved, the seriousness with which we take the new temporal laws established for the present health and safety of ourselves and our neighbors should pale in comparison to the seriousness with which we take the eternal law of God given to us. Solomon wrote, a wise heart accepts commands. In regard to all authority, especially divine authority, pride says, I am above the law. I know better. This doesn't apply to me. But humility says, I will submit to the law and trust that God knows what's best for me. James urges us to be doers of the law, not judges of the law. The third reason that James gives, he says, because of how we are to think about God. Our view of God has direct bearing on how we speak to one another. James says there's only one lawgiver, one judge, he who is able to save and destroy. Only one lawgiver. Let that soak into your heart just for a moment. You see, when we disregard any law of God, 
We're making a statement about what we believe about the God who made those laws. At best, we are disputing his authority to make those laws and to establish those guidelines for our life. We're saying, you don't know what's good for me. You don't know what's best for me. Even though you created me, even though you created this world that's around me, you really don't know me well. I know myself better. Beloved one, God knows what is best for us. God knows what is best for the ordering of our society. God knows what is best for the kingdom that he is establishing. God knows what is best for us. And furthermore, the law is an expression of God. It's an expression of the character of God and of who God is. And when we disregard a law which is summarized as love your neighbor as yourself, what we're saying is I don't like you, God. I don't want you to set the boundaries for my life. What we're saying is, God, I don't really trust you as judge. In fact, I would make a better judge. And we elbow him off the throne and we set ourselves up on the throne. Where is wisdom in that? James is wanting us to understand that the royal law is for our good and for our benefit. It leads to eternal life. There's only one law and only one God liver. What, hum- what does humility look like? Humility, lo- humility looks like submission to the law and the lawgiver. I think maybe it matters that we just think about this for a moment. The law is a good thing in so many ways. And there's a danger when we begin to set ourselves as judges over the law. You see, the law is what God has given to convict us of our sin. The law is what God has given to convict us of our need for him. The law is what God has given us so that we understand the standard of God's righteousness. And it's through that law that we come to understand the reality of our circumstances and the desperate situation of our lives and we concur then with what the, Paul says to the Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you see a danger that comes into our lives when we set ourselves above the law? When we rewrite God's law to suit our own proclivities? We deceive ourselves into thinking we're safe. We deceive ourselves into writing our own law, which is not the law of God. We deceive ourselves in coming into this extraordinary position where we have placed our law and our law keeping as our safety net rather than God's law and God's keeping as our necessity for life. And we forget where it says, don't fear those who are able to kill the body but not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So what do we do? Is it hopeless? Absolutely not. This is the beauty of the cross, and this is the beauty of Christ. This drives us to Christ. Christ alone has kept the whole law of God in thought, intent, and in motive, and in actual deed. He perfectly obeyed the Father in every way, and that's the good news of the gospel for every one of us. That we put our trust in Jesus Christ who is our perfect righteousness. Who is our perfect law keeper. And as we put our trust in Christ and his righteousness we are accepted by God. Not in our law keeping. 
And we don't keep the law in order to be accepted by God. Our acceptance to God comes through the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed or laid upon us. But we keep the law now because it is the way that God has said, walk in it and you will find life and peace and happiness and you will be blessed. Christ is the only answer to the demands of the law. It's through Christ's law keeping that we are accepted by God. And finally, James says we are not to speak evil against our brothers or our neighbors because of how we ought to think of ourselves. At the end of verse 12, he says, but who are you to judge your neighbor? I don't think this is a harsh word from James. I think this is a gentle word from James. This is a pastoral word from James. Wrap your head around the fact that these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Wrap your head around the fact that every one of our neighbors is somebody that is made in the image of God. And in the light of the law of God, which is to shape my life, in the light of the God who has given us this law, who alone will judge, who am I to judge my neighbors? Who am I? I'm a recipient of God's grace. I'm a recipient of God's mercy. I am seeking to, to walk not according to my own wisdom, not according to my own desires, but according to the wisdom of God. I am seeking to walk in humility, to walk humbly before God as a doer of the law. And because of God's work in me, and because of Christ's example to me, I want to be a lover of my neighbor. You're right, James. Who am I? To judge my neighbor. So what does humility look like? Humility looks like submission to God's law which commands me to love my neighbor. And may that reality, that what is the second commandment that we are to keep to love your neighbor as yourself, may that reality of the life of God in us be seen in our brothers and our sisters and in our neighbors in the way that we speak to them, particularly in the days and age in which we live right now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, its guidance in our life and its help in our life. As we continue to work our way through uh, the situations we find ourselves, Father, may our humility be actually seen in our speech as we speak in love towards one another as our heart is transformed by your grace and your mercy and your work of regeneration may that heart that is transformed be worked out into loving righteous peaceful gentle words to those around us we pray this in jesus name amen